Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of the morning of April 9th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, tonight we are going to be looking at the possibility that the uh, criminal military adventure in Ukraine could backfire horribly for Vladimir Putin and may actually portend the imminent breakup of Russia. And I want to begin by uh, briefly repudiating the oft-heard tanky jive that Russia is not imperialist, a denial of self-evident reality. The Russian Empire was an empire. That's why it was called the Russian Empire. Its fundamental structures paradoxically survived the Russian Revolution through Moscow's hegemony over the other SSRs, Soviet Socialist Republics. Its imperial reach went beyond the borders of the USSR under Stalin and then went global under Khrushchev. There was a massive contraction after the Soviet collapse but Putin is now rebuilding the empire with openly revanchist and fascist ambitions. Any equivocation on the reality of Russian imperialism and its current aggressive posture is a historical denialist bunk. Now, the grain of truth to this denialist bunk oft heard from the tankies is that Russian imperialism is not the globalized super-imperialism of the United States, which is, by the way, in rapid contraction at the moment, but is imperialism nonetheless by any honest definition, and is even with the massive Russian military intervention in Syria since 2015, beginning to rebuild its global reach. And I will just briefly point out the claims of Amnesty International that last month, Russian mercenaries from the Wagner Group, military contractor, were involved in the massacre of some 300 unarmed civilian captives in a village in the West African nation of Mali. Interestingly enough, just about the same number that was apparently killed by Russian troops in the Ukrainian town of Buka, but has received far less media coverage. But apart from this attempt to rebuild a global reach, and apart even from the attempts to reestablish control over the former Soviet republics, the Russian Federation is itself fundamentally an empire. Even within the internationally recognized borders of Russia, there are numerous internally colonized peoples who are, in some cases, allowed a semblance of limited self-government in their own internal republics, oblasts, and cries, which are the constituent entities, administrative divisions of the Russian Federation. Republics, oblasts, and cries, each having varying degrees of self-governance. I return to the quote from Frederick Engels that I read a couple of podcasts ago, 
in one of his essays on the Crimean War in 1855, that the Western powers of Europe had only one alternative, submission to the Slavic yoke, or the destruction forever of its center of offensive strength, Russia. End quote. But actually, Russia could be destroyed, not due to military invasion from the West, which it has survived three times by Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm, and Hitler, but due to its own internal contradictions. Okay, to uh, start the conversation, sort of frame the conversation, I'm going to read a uh, brief book review a review of the book The Soviet Myth of World War II, Patriotic Memory and the Russian Question in the USSR by Jonathan Brunstad, Cambridge University Press, 2021, reviewed by Maria Lippmann in the January-February edition of Foreign Affairs. According to Brunstad's thoroughly researched book, The Soviet understanding of World War II, which Russians call the Great Patriotic War, consisted of two competing narratives. One story was Russo-centric, emphasizing the leading role of the Russian people in the ethnically diverse Soviet Union and the legacy of pre-revolutionary Russia's military prowess through the centuries. The other was pan-Soviet, glorifying the supranational Soviet community and framing the victory over Nazi Germany as a triumph of the communist Soviet system. Brunstedt describes the uneasy balancing act attempted by consecutive Soviet governments of remembering the victory as an event with a uniquely Soviet provenance without fully abandoning the Russo-centric view of the war as the specific triumph of the Russian people. Joseph Stalin promoted strongly Russo-centric views of the war, but even in his tenure, pan-Soviet conceptions of victory gained greater currency thanks in large part to concerns about provoking anti-Soviet Russian nationalism. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev's de-Stalinization campaign worked to suppress Russo-centric imagery, or at least to disassociate it from the victory. Under Khrushchev's successor, Leonid Brezhnev, the effective expansion of a purely pan-Soviet war cult was accompanied by the rise of Russian nationalism among high-ranking Communist Party functionaries, and the literary elite, end quote. So this was really the beginning of the, you know, the far-right Russo-nationalist backlash, which um, immediately followed the Soviet collapse. And two of the key figures from that period who came to the fore were uh, Alexander Dugin, who we've um, discussed previously on this podcast, still said to be a uh, kind of intellectual guru to Vladimir Putin, and uh, Vladimir Zirinovsky, who was uh, kind of the grand old daddy of the Russian far right in the in the Duma, in the Russian parliament, and a longtime ally of Putin, of course, who uh, just died just this week at the age of 75. Strong supporter, of course, 
and foremost advocate in the Duma of the invasion of Ukraine. And the ultranationalism pioneered back then by figures like Zirinovsky and today manifesting as Putinism, I believe is haunted by the notion that the implosion of the USSR into its constituent entities, the Soviet Socialist Republics, which became independent countries in 1991, could be succeeded now a generation later by an implosion of the Russian Federation itself into its constituent entities, the Republic's oblasts and cries, and that the adventure in Ukraine and the concomitant consolidation of a total dictatorship by Putin is in part motivated by the imperative to avoid the splintering of Russia, but may paradoxically help bring it about. Now, reports of war crimes in Ukraine mount by the day, but I'm just going to uh, touch on the one that is grabbing the most attention because it uh, ties into what we're discussing tonight. The massacre of... 300 civilians in Buka, a suburb of Kiev, where upwards of 150 bodies were buried in a mass grave, while others were left scattered along the streets for weeks. And here's an extremely ominous quote from a Ukrainian member of parliament. Quote, Now we know that many were murdered, but only a few of the bodies have been identified so far. And there's the possibility that the Russians used mobile crematoria to dispose of some of the bodies. There are also many reports of people being kidnapped, as many as 7,000 who are believed to have been taken by the Russians to filtration camps, end quote. Now, the term filtration camps has actually emerged from the Russian bureaucracy itself, It was the term used for the uh, internment camps that Russian forces established during the wars in Chechnya. So this is extremely ominous and certainly demands urgent investigation by international human rights groups, the United Nations, and the International Criminal Court. Now, the man identified as the so-called Butcher of Buka by Ukrainian intelligence is one Lieutenant Colonel Azatbek Amerbekov of the 64th Motorized Rifle Brigade, based in Khabarovsk Krai, in Russia's Far East. And there's a picture of his troops, apparently, in Buka, which has been circulating on social media, in which they pose with the flag of the Republic of Yakushia, recently renamed Sakha, in eastern Siberia, immediately adjacent to Khabarovsk Krai. So there seems to be an element there which is linking regional pride to ugly Russian nationalism. But this has also been a very restive and troublesome region for Moscow in recent years. Now, the recent anti-war protests that we saw in Russia, which unfortunately appear to have gone into abeyance in the face of overwhelming repression, were um, presaged just over a year ago 
January 2021 by a wave of protest across Russia to demand the release of the imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny, including in Vladivostok and the Russian Far East. And the summer before that, July 2020, tens of thousands of people protested in Russia's far east city of Khabarovsk in a rare display of opposition to Putin. Reading from the account on my website, Counter Vortex, written at the time. Video footage shows protesters shouting slogans such as, Freedom! Putin is a thief! And Putin resign! Unrest broke out following the arrest of Khabarovsk Krai governor, Sergei Fergal, on apparently dubious charges of having ordered murders of his rivals 15 years earlier. Now, uh, Fergal is himself a follower of uh, Vladimir Zirinovsky, but um, appears to have been, for whatever reasons, on the outs with Putin. So he's nobody to uh, to rally around by any stretch of the imagination. But he appears to have, you know, clashed with Putin and harnessed local anti-Putin sentiment. And certainly the protests were a uh, an indication of um, dissension in this part of Russia, so distant from the center of power in Moscow. Now, here is an actually far more hopeful and certainly much more interesting and offbeat <laughs> story from uh, September 2019, Siberian shamans anti-Putin protest trek cut short. A traditional shaman of Siberia's indigenous Yakut people who had been walking cross-country for months toward Moscow to, quote, hold an exorcism ritual <laughs> and drive Putin out of the Kremlin, <clears throat> was arrested in Russia's far eastern public of Buryatia, near Lake Baikal, where the famous Buryat throat singers are from. The region's interior ministry said that Alexander Gabishev was detained overnight on a highway. Gabishev's supporters told Radio Free Europe that several vehicles arrived overnight at a camp they had set up and took away the shaman and the cart he used to push his belongings. The uniformed men did not identify themselves and gave no reason for Gabishev's arrest. Gabishev had started his walk to Moscow four months earlier, saying that he considered Putin a creation of dark forces and that only a shaman could stand against him. He covered 2,000 kilometers on foot and talked with hundreds of truck drivers and local residents along the way, gaining notoriety on social media. In July 2019, upon reaching the city of Chita, Zabaikalsky cry, Gabishev gathered some 700 people under the slogan, Russia without Putin. The shaman said that, quote, God told me Putin is not a human, but instead a demon and ordered me to drive him out, end quote. And a spokesman for Amnesty International, their Russia director, Natalia Zviagina, said, quote, the shaman's actions may be eccentric, but the Russian authorities' response is grotesque. Are they truly afraid of his magical powers? 
Alexander Gabeshev should be free to express his political views and exercise his religion just like anyone else, end quote. On September 9th of 2019, three days of protests began in Ulan Ude, the capital of Beryashia, both demanding the release of Gabishev and challenging the results of local elections, complaining that they were rigged. Very interesting story. And yes, note our source, Radio Free Europe, media arm of the U.S. State Department, covering repression in Russia and China, including that of indigenous peoples such as the Yakut and Uyghurs, is what they do best. And I used their account because it was the best that I could find on the arrest of Alexander Gabishev. And I am certainly aware of the politically problematic nature of the source. Similarly, Kremlin propaganda organ RT aggressively covered the Dakota Access Pipeline protest in the United States by the Standing Rock Lakota Sioux and their environmental supporters back in 2016. So, indigenous struggles are exploited by both sides in the propaganda game played by the rival superpowers. Uh, Citing local authorities, Moscow Times later reported that Gabishev was being held in a psychiatric facility in Yakushia, certainly a very ominous echo of Soviet times. He was also said to face up to four years in prison on charges of, quote, calling for extremist activity, (laughs) conducting an exorcism like the Yippies did at the Pentagon back in 1967. He was going to do it the Kremlin. In June of 2020, the Memorial Human Rights Center, Russia's foremost human rights group, issued a statement calling Gabishev a political prisoner, noting, quote, he was deprived of freedom solely because of his political and religious beliefs. And the last update I was able to find was from um, September 2021, when Amnesty International reported that Gabishev was indefinitely confined to a psychiatric hospital. So I want to know, where is the campaign to demand freedom for Alexander Gabishev? And I will also note that the Memorial Human Rights Center was recently ordered closed by judicial authorities for violating Russia's so-called foreign agents law, a part of the general consolidation of a dictatorship, which we are witnessing concomitant with the invasion of Ukraine. Now, very interestingly, right now, you can sort of see this dynamic of Putin trying to maintain clientelist control over Russia's indigenous peoples, not entirely successfully, A story from March 12th of this year. Russian indigenous leaders protest Putin's war. Exiled leaders of Russia's Itelmen, Kamchadal, Udeje, Shor, Sami, and Selkop, indigenous peoples, issued a statement, March 10th, declaring that they are, quote, outraged by the war President Putin has unleashed against Ukraine. As representatives of indigenous peoples, We express solidarity with the people of Ukraine in their struggle for freedom and are extremely concerned about ensuring the rights of indigenous peoples during the war on Ukrainian territory, including the Crimean Peninsula that remains illegally occupied by Russia. End quote. 
The seven exiled leaders who signed the statement also expressed outrage at statements by the leadership of the Russian Association of Indigenous Peoples of the North, RIPON, in support of Putin's war effort. The exiled leaders charged that RIPON leaders, who signed a pro-war statement, quote, should also be treated as war criminals, not merely accomplices of the war, because they voted for military action as members of the Russian parliament, end quote. The exiled leaders are calling upon the United Nations, the Council of Europe, and the Arctic Council to withdraw recognition of RIPON as a representative organization of Russia's native ethnicities. And they announced the creation of a new independent organization, the International Committee of Indigenous Peoples of Russia. Now, one absurd little irony, little noted by the world media, is that as uh, Putin, back in 2014, began backing the brutal People's Republics, quote-unquote, in eastern Ukraine, the pro-Russian separatist enclaves, he simultaneously cracked down on a separatist movement that emerged in Siberia. There was a flurry of reports in August 2014 of plans for a, quote, march for Siberian federalization, planned for the city of Novosibirsk, capital of the oblast of that name. And ironically, this uh, received a little bit of coverage in the West, mostly because of Putin's attempts to uh, prevent the media from reporting on it and actually threatened uh, to block the BBC Russian service over its coverage of the movement. I was not able to determine if the march actually took place or if it was effectively stifled by preemptive repression. And there's also some ambiguity as to whether the march was entirely in earnest or if it was intended to call out Putin on his support for the separatists in Ukraine. But the Siberians might see plenty of reason to wish to be free of Russia. Indigenous peoples such as the Telenjit and Evenk have protested Russian pipeline routes through their territory, which even threaten such world heritage treasures as Lake Baikal. Siberia's permafrost is melting with terrifying rapidity as an obvious result of global warming. So the territory's people have good reason to oppose Putin's plans to drill for oil in the Siberian Arctic. There have also been protests over Russian plans to dump nuclear waste in Siberia. So the Free Siberia Facebook page does not seem to be entirely a joke. Okay, back in 2007, when this kind of protest was a lot more possible in Russia than it is today, local residents and their environmentalist supporters established a peace camp to protest plans to uh, build a nuclear waste facility at the electrochemical industrial complex of Angarsk, near Lake Baikal in Irkutsk Oblast. A very clear parallel to the struggle that we have discussed before of the Western Shoshone indigenous people of Nevada to oppose the plans for the U.S. Energy Department's nuclear waste dump at Yucca Mountain. Okay, from uh, September 2011, 
Siberia's Telenjit people protest Altai gas pipeline. The indigenous Telenjit people in Russia's Altai Republic are turning to the international community to help stop a new gas pipeline to China that would cut through their sacred lands and a UN-recognized World Heritage Site. When first announced in 2006 by Russian President Vladimir Putin, the 2,700-kilometer Altai pipeline was slated to be complete by the end of 2011, but construction was delayed by cost disputes. The group Cultural Survival warned that the pipeline would bisect the Ukok Plateau, sacred to the Talenjit, and the Golden Mountains of Altai, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, as well as the Kanas National Park in China's Xinjiang province, one of that country's last undeveloped wilderness areas. In their public appeal, the Talenjit warn, quote, damage to permafrost on Ukok is particularly dangerous, as it will hasten the melting of glaciers in the Tabin Bagdo Ola and southern Altai ranges. This region is also prone to earthquakes and could cause devastating pipeline leaks and spills. Construction of the pipeline also threatens our local economy. In our territory of traditional natural resource use, which appears to be an entity self-declared by the Telenjit, we practice free-range animal husbandry, fishing and hunting, and we are developing cultural and ecological tourism. Construction of a pipeline, contamination, and the melting of permafrost will affect all our economic activities, and we will lose our sources of food and livelihood. End quote. And again, it appears that uh, all these years later, the uh, Altai gas pipeline is still under construction. That story was from 2011. They still haven't completed it, from what I can gather. But indigenous peoples elsewhere in Siberia have been similarly protesting a network of new gas pipelines slated to grid their territories. The indigenous Evenk people in North Siberia in 2011, launched a campaign against Russian energy giant Gazprom's plans for a pipeline through their territory, which they say threatens their traditional hunting and fishing grounds. The planned pipeline, which will link the Yakushia Republic's Chayandinovskoye oil and gas field with the far eastern Russian city of Karabovsk, is to be developed near an Evenk settlement. We are not against progress or economic development, but we feel like we are the ones who will suffer from this. The Russian news agency Ria Novosti quoted the group as saying in a petition signed by over 200 indigenous Evenks, quote, our reindeer pastures and hunting sites are being seized, rivers are being poisoned, and fish are disappearing, end quote. Now, Moscow has been aggressively seeking Western capital for these and related development plans. Gazprom was reported to be moving ahead on talks with Royal Dutch Shell for further development of gas resources on Sakhalin Island for export to Japan, while the Russian energy giant Rosneft 
recently established deals with ExxonMobil for exploration and exploitation of gas reserves in the Black Sea, and with BP for oil drilling in the Arctic Kara Sea. So all you tankies who oppose sanctions on Russia, great. I'm sure that Exxon, Shell, and BP will be very pleased with your position, even if it's impolitic for them to say so out loud at the moment. Another report from 2011. An indigenous people in Siberia is demanding compensation for damage to their health they say was caused by a series of crashes of Russian spacecraft. Representatives of the Tubalars, a Turkic people living in the Altai Republic's Choi district, are demanding that Roscosmos, Moscow's space agency, pay for damage done by the August 24, 2011 crash of a proton rocket shortly after it was launched from the Baikonur space complex in neighboring Kazakhstan. Tubalar leader Maria Sakova told journalists that many locals experienced respiratory problems and headaches after the crash from inhaling toxic fumes from released fuel. Sakova added that proton rockets regularly crash in Altai territory and the wreckage has damaged the local ecosystem. She said the Tubalar's traditional subsistence farming has been affected as the heptil-based fuel has poisoned cedar cones, one of her people's staple foods. And then there's a bunch of denials from Roscosmos, of course. Surprise, surprise. Okay, and now we're going to zoom out for a little bit more of a uh, geopolitical perspective and um, examine the China angle in the potential destabilization of the Russian Far East. Now, Beijing definitely sees strategic long-term designs for this region, which were certainly exemplified by the Declaration of the People's Republic of China that it is an Arctic nation, which can only be seen with unease by Moscow. Now, at the moment, Russia and China seem to be aligned with one another. But, uh, you know, I mean, just like George Orwell in 1984 saw the world as being divided between Oceania, which is the Anglo-American sphere, more or less analogous to NATO, Eurasia, Russia and its satellite states, and East Asia, China, and its own smaller sphere of influence. And there was always kind of a, you know, shifting alliance in which, you know, two of these states would be allied against the other. And then it would flip, and the other two would be allied against the first. And, you know, it's all played out very much as Orwell foresaw there. You know, first, uh, communist China and the Soviet Union were aligned with each other against the West until the Sino-Soviet split. And the real turning point year was 1972, when Nixon went to China. And for more than a generation after that, China was really aligned with the U.S. against Russia. And then I believe there was a similar turning point where things switched back again in 1999 when in the U.S. bombardment of Belgrade, whether intentionally or not, the Chinese embassy was struck. And that's when China began moving back toward Russia. And as we've noted, you know, they've recently held unprecedented joint naval maneuvers in the Sea of Japan. 
And I think that China is certainly watching very closely what's happening in Ukraine right now to see if it can similarly get away with taking over Taiwan. But interestingly, in the United Nations resolutions condemning Russia's aggression in Ukraine, China has abstained rather than voting with Russia. So there's a sense that, uh, you know, uh, Beijing is hedging its bets and hasn't thrown in its lot entirely with Russia. And as a part of uh, Beijing's rapprochement with Moscow over the past um, 20 years, is that they formally resolved a series of border disputes in a series of agreements between 1991 and 2004. All right, and here we're going to go into a little bit of historical background. The Amur River, a Mongolian name, known to the Chinese as the Heilongjiang, or Black Dragon River, together with its southern tributary, the Usori, make up the border between Russia and China from the northern tip of what used to be called Manchuria, today China's Heilongjiang province, where it meets the Russian oblasts of Buryat and Amur, to the Sea of Akatsk between Japan and the Kamchatka Peninsula. Now, until about 170 years ago, the lands on what are now the Russian side of the Amur Basin were claimed by Imperial China, but they never really had effective control of it, and it was very sparsely populated. In 1650, a Russian explorer, as the term is used, an adventurer, Yerofai Khabarov, established a uh, frontier outpost in this region, which sparked 30 years of intermittent war as China sent forces across the Amur River to drive out Khabarov. Uh, This long and sporadic war was ultimately lost by Russia, which is not surprising given the region's remoteness from Moscow and basically non-existent lines of supply. And in the Treaty of Nerchinsk of 1689, Russia was forced to recognize this territory, all of the Amur Basin, both sides of the border, as belonging to China. And this did not change until the 1850s, when Count Nikolai Moravyov entered the region with overwhelming force and wrested the Treaty of Aigun from the then-declining Chinese Empire in 1858. Nikolai Moravyov named the newly annexed territory Khabarovsk in honor of his predecessor from two centuries earlier, Yerofai Khabarov. He established the city of Vladivostok and became the uh, governor of the Russian Far East and um, added Amorsky to his name, taking the name of the territory that he conquered, the Amur Basin and became Count Nikolai Moravyov Amorsky. Now, in uh, the Treaty of Aigun, it was agreed that the Amur and Osori rivers would be the border. But the status of the islands within these rivers was never clearly defined. And uh, jumping forward another century and change, Russia and China actually came to armed conflict 
over an island in the Osori River in March of 1969. Almost went to war with each other. Actually did have a brief war, which left several dead on both sides, and kind of um, cemented the Sino-Soviet split. And of course, it was just three years later that Nixon sat down with Mao in Beijing, and the whole geopolitical alignment fundamentally shifted. I'm going to read a little from a very interesting analysis by one Ksaba Barnabas Horvath, a researcher at the Silk Road Research Group of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences on the website Geopolitical Monitor on China's stance vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine, entitled, Was China Betting on Russian Defeat All Along? And Horvath writes, quote, If an obvious and undeniable fiasco in Ukraine triggers a coup or some other form of regime change in Russia that fails to take place quickly and smoothly and ends up in a prolonged internal turmoil or even civil war, such a situation could be the now-or-never moment for China to march into Siberia, probably under the pretext of peacekeeping or something similar. Horvath goes on to note, quote, Mongolia, as well as the Tuvan Autonomous Republic of Russia, were parts of China until the fall of the Qing Empire in 1911. Russia first supported them gaining de facto independence in the 1910s, with Mongolia serving as a strategic buffer state against China. Then the Bolsheviks expanded communist rule to Mongolia and Tuva as well. After the Second World War, the Soviet Union achieved formal recognition of Mongolia's independence by the People's Republic of China and annexed Tuva directly. So, very interestingly, there was actually a formally independent Republic of Tanu Tuva between 1921 and 1944 which is today the Tuva Republic, sometimes also rendered the Tiva Republic, T-Y-V-A, of Russia, bordering Mongolia on the northeast. And I just want to wrap things up here by pointing out that um, even within European Russia, there are internally colonized minority peoples who are becoming increasingly restive Mostly remnant populations from the Mongol and Tartar Golden Horde that ruled Russia in medieval times, but have today been reduced to indigenous minority peoples within Russia. One is the Kalmyks, who are actually a Mongol Buddhist people within European Russia, who have a Kalmyk oblast. But during World War II, were forcibly relocated en masse to Siberia by Joseph Stalin, as were the Crimean Tartars. And memory of this mass deportation continues to make many of them very suspicious of Russian rule today. I believe they were largely allowed to return to what is now their autonomous oblast in the Khrushchev era, whereas the Crimean Tartars really were not allowed to return to Crimea until after the fall of the Soviet Union, or the final years of the Soviet Union. 
And in addition to the Crimean Tartars, whose plight we are familiar with, their peninsula annexed by Russia in 2014, and have since had their autonomy abrogated and their leaders persecuted and imprisoned, there is also a second Tartar population within Russia proper, so to speak, in the Republic of Tartarstan, in the east of European Russia, near the Ural Mountains, which, of course, separate European Russia from Siberia. A story from September 2008. Next, Free Tartarstan? And uh, this was in the period when Putin was prime minister and his puppet, Dmitry Medvedev, was the president. When Russia's president, Dmitry Medvedev, formally recognized Georgia's separatist enclaves of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, activists in the Russian Republic of Tartarstan reacted quickly. The All Tartar Civic Center published an appeal for Moscow's recognition of Tartarstan's independence. Rashid Akhmatov, editor of an opposition newspaper in Kazan, Tartarstan's capital, said, quote, Russia has lost the moral right not to recognize us, end quote. And Lawrence Scott Sheets, the Caucasus Program Director at the International Crisis Group, speaking of Russia's decision to recognize South Ossetia and Abkhazia, the breakaway separatist enclaves of Georgia, back during this time, commented, quote, In the long term, they could have signed their own death warrant, end quote. This quote is from a uh, story in the New York Times. September 10th, 2008, other Russian regions, which were identified by the Times as likely to seek independence in the wake of the Georgian crisis, were Bashkortostan, Adigeya, Charakayevo, Cherkessia, and Kabardino, Balkaria. So, uh, you know, we see the same pattern. In Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine since 2014, in encouraging separatism in Georgia and Ukraine, you know, Russia sought to provide an excuse to invade and at least de facto annex chunks of their national territory. But this may ultimately backfire horribly for Putin. And these wars, Georgia and Ukraine, in addition to being expansionist, in their aims, I believe also have a domestic imperative for Moscow, being partly aimed at unifying the Russian nation in war frenzy and shoring up Moscow's grip on its far-flung empire, but could result in just the opposite, actually spurring and inflaming separatist and independence movements. And Russia could be reduced in the not-too-distant future to what in medieval times was called Moscovy, and everything east of the Urals, as well as much of the Russian Caucasus, could become independent entities. And this holds both the potential for a catastrophic ethnic war, but also for a more just and decentralized order, and for self-determination for the many colonized indigenous peoples of the still extant Russian Empire.
Okay, just a couple of things before I sign off. One is I want to give a shout out to my good friend and comrade, Yevgeny Lerner. My discussions with him have definitely uh, provided some of the inspiration for this rant. And I believe that I may have even lifted a, a line or two of him, ver, you know, verbatim. <laughs> I hope you'll forgive me, Yevgeny. And uh, please do um, check out his story on our website, countervortex.org, the Crimean clause of the Ukraine question. Very important little read on an underappreciated dimension to the conflict in Ukraine. And I believe that uh, Yevgeny is actually working on a zine with his thoughts on the Ukraine war. Once uh, he gets fed into print, we'll uh, have him live on this podcast. Or I guess it isn't live. I'm used to thinking in terms of radio. Anyway, have him on this podcast. I also want to point out a couple of the books that provided inspiration for this rant. Uh, A lot of the historical background comes from a really fascinating book uh, written at the height of the Sino-Soviet split, War Between Russia and China by Harrison E. Salisbury, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist, published in 1969. And, of course, the great germinal decentralist manifesto, The Breakdown of Nations by Leopold Kor, 1957. And uh, the final thing that I feel the need to say before uh, signing off is that I definitely apply this critique of the brittle nature of centralized empires to my own country. And I by no means take it for granted that the United States is going to survive forever as a political entity. Its own internal contradictions, in some ways analogous to those in Russia, and in some ways not, are also eating away at its foundations, as has become far more clear in recent years. And the eventual collapse of the United States also holds both promise and peril. But that is a discussion for another podcast. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I've been ranting about is hyperlinked and documented. Please support us on Patreon. To the tune of just one or two dollars a week, it really makes a difference. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.